All right, well, we've officially made it halfway through the book of Revelation so far, so congratulations. Uh, we originally were uh, scheduled to go through about mid-August, I think it was. We've gotten pushed back into September. We've added a couple, couple times. Hopefully, we're just continuing to try to find the pace of uh, not wanting to get caught in, in the weeds, because uh, that's one of the dangers with Revelation, but also trying to make, make sure we're answering enough questions that people might have as we go along. Because uh, there are a lot of questions that pop in our head. This is unique literature. Uh, so we're trying to keep trying to find the balance of that. Uh, just, so just a reminder, we're in apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's just good to remember that every time uh, you know we, we open this book. Uh, we're right in the heart of the visions that are otherworldly. And we're supposed to read them as such. And not, there's not in the future going to be a woman that actually is clothed with the sun. And in the ne- at the end of the paragraph is running through the wilderness. So there was an old movie called in- Incredible Shrinking Woman. Do you remember that? That's, that's, that's not actually going to happen, right? This, this is a vision. It's an image. The image is meant to point to a theological reality, and that's what we want to figure out. And we want to stay high enough, not get lost in the weeds, so, but stay high enough on that truth to figure out what's going on so that we experience the point that John's trying to help us experience. And so one of the ways to, oftentimes to experience uh, or go into apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is to try to feel the text before you try to analyze it. Feel the swirl and the chaos, what's trying to be communicated, communicated before you actually dissect it too uh, much. But today we, we enter into a new section. Uh, if you remember, Revelation is sort of the series of sevens opens with seven letters to the seven churches. And then we got into the seven seals from 4-1 to the end of chapter 7, or actually 8-1. And then 8-2 is from the seven trumpets all the way to 11-18. And then 11-19 through 15-4 are these seven visions that we get. If you look at 11-19, it opens in a very similar way that we've already seen uh, in the book. Uh, Eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, uh, which we've seen that in four one. It's a way of starting a new section that John does. We'll see it again in fifteen five in nineteen eleven. It's a, a rhetorical way of John uh, telling us something new is coming. And I, I, I saw this open. And as the, the listener, we should be saying, well, "What did you see? What was in there?" And then he tells us, uh, continuing on verse nineteen, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Once again, something we've already seen that is opening the scene of the seals and opening the scene of the trumpets. It's, just, it's really this, this picture going back to Exodus uh, 19 and 20 when God is on Mount Sinai and the people of Israel are, are there at the base of the mountain and there's this earthquake, there's rumblings and thunder and lightning and God speaking to his people. It's God's presence who comes with authority. And at other times throughout the scriptures, it's God's judgment coming with the earthquake and the rumbling. So, uh, but John is always starting new sections with this imagery. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, chapter 12 is sort of like the introduction to what's going to happen. If you remember the seals, we had this long introduction, chapter 4 and chapter 5, of the Ancient of Days on the throne, and then the, the, son of, uh, the, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, comes and takes the scroll. And then uh, 6 and 7 are the opening of the scrolls, right? 
Uh, here we have the introduction of a conflict that happens between two great signs. There's this conflict that has gone on for a long time and is going to continue to go on until the Son of God comes again and the conflict's between this woman and the dragon. And then 13 through 15.4 is going to explain that in more detail. Like what happens in the conflict? How does that conflict end? And what goes on in the years during the conflict? So actually 13.1 to 15.4, which we'll see as we go. But just so you see it now, uh, we have a series of seven visions. And it's the same statement in the original text uh, every time to start these. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 13, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And then 13.11, Then I saw another beast. 14.1, Then I looked, and behold. Now that's actually the same phrase in the original, And I saw. Uh, 14.6, Then I saw another angel. And then 14, 14, then I looked, and behold, again, the same phrase in the original in the Greek. Uh, 15, 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, and 15, 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. So we have seven visions that John is going to use to explain this conflict. How, how does it happen, and how does it end? But for today, we're just going to focus on chapter 12 this conflict. And before we walk through the text and think about it, what's, what's he trying to get at? Uh, let, me, let me state the uh, main point, as I understand, uh, that John's trying to exhort the church. I think he would say that the meaning is something like this. Wastelanders must be alert because the devil longs to destroy you. Now, obviously, maybe you haven't heard the word wastelanders, which we'll get to that at some point here. That you would say wastelanders must be alert because the devil longs to destroy them. I don't know if you've ever been hated in life, like actually hated by someone. Someone that wants to hurt you. Someone that wants to destroy your life, wants to destroy your family, wants to destroy you personally. Well, if you're a follower of Christ, you are absolutely hated. You are hunted. You are harassed. And this passage is going to show us what it's like for wastelanders in the pilgrimage. And that we must be on alert because the devil longs to destroy you. But first, let me just uh, clarify three uh, three characters that we have in the text, and then we'll walk through it and think about it. Uh, We have three characters that we're going to be introduced to. Uh, we'll start with the easiest first and make our way to the a little bit more difficult. Uh, the first one is this child that happens, or uh, this child that, it, that is birthed. Uh, that, we can clearly say, is Jesus the Christ. Uh, in verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, this coming the, the, uh, from Psalm 2, Psalm 2 about the anointed one, who would be God's son, who God would give king, a kingdom to, and who he would rule with, with a rod of iron. And this, throughout the New Testament, is always pointed to as Jesus being the one uh, who ascended on, into heaven, uh, seated at the right hand of God Almighty, and reigns with a rod of iron. 
Furthermore, uh, later in the text, as we see uh, that the authority of his Christ has come, which is an explanation of verse 5. The second character is the red dragon, who appears in verse 3. We're told exactly who this dragon is in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. So we're told right up front, John says, this dragon that I'm talking about in this image is Satan himself. He's the ancient serpent. Uh, He's also described as the deceiver of the world in verse 9. And then verse 10, he's described as the accuser of the brethren, which is interesting, right? He He first deceives someone into rejecting God, and then he accuses them, right? As we were talking about this in text group, I immediately went back to my uh, grown-up uh, days. The, the first time I ever said a swear word, uh, my sister, uh, was, who's older than me, was, she was like holding me down on the table or something, and she kept telling me to say this word, say this word, and she kept telling me the word, and so then I said it, and then she ran off and told my mom, and I got in trouble, right? <laughs> she first deceives me, do this, right? This is what we see in the garden. God, God's hiding something from you. He knows that you'll be like God. And as soon as they eat, eat the apple or the fruit, it's, I'm, I'm going to tell God. God needs to hear about this. Right? He's the deceit. First he deceives, then he accuses. That's who this great dragon is. And the third character we have is the woman who's clothed with the sun. Uh, I, my understanding of this woman would be to say that she is, you might call her Mother Israel, Right? There's this uh, contrast between the ancient serpent, right? So this is take, the ancient serpent takes us back to Genesis 3, right? The one who came in to deceive. And this, this woman who's going to give birth to a child, again, goes right back to Genesis 3, who the, through the seed of the woman, uh, the serpent's going to be crushed, right? So it, it's taking us back there as the, the story c- continues on through the scriptures, this this mother Israel is going to give birth to a child who's going to crush the serpent. And then verse 17, this mother Israel, we would call her, uh, has offspring, who then uh, are the people of God individually. So verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And then he defines very clearly who are those offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's very clear that who the offspring are, those are clear, that is clearly the church. I would understand the woman as well. Uh, it's, it's meant to just be all taken together. Mother Israel, who births offspring. Uh, John, actually, in his letter, Second John, actually starts off his letter uh, by saying this. I'm assuming he's writing to the church. He says, the elder, John, to the elect lady and her children. The very same imagery here. The elect lady, the church, and her children, the people of the church. And it's just the very same imagery. In Isaiah 54, you get the same idea. Uh, God saying to Israel, O barren one, like, O barren woman, you are going to have offspring who are going to fill the nations. So it's the same idea, Mother Israel, whom Messiah will come through and who all of God's people come through. So the, the woman uh, represents God's people throughout history, the church, the people of God. So this is the, that's the great conflict then. We have the woman uh, who the dragon is coming after, who's hunting the woman and her offspring, 
uh, and this child. So let's walk through the text and then think about this, this idea here. Wastelanders must be on alert because the devil longs to destroy you. All right, verse 1. And the great, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. I'll pause there just to get a picture of this woman. Uh, now, if she's clothed with the sun... I mean, now, you've you got to start thinking big, right? This is, this is glorious and big. Uh, she also has, she's like standing on the moon. So this, this is a, ma- a massive picture, right? Um, some point back to uh, Deuteron- or, uh, Genesis, when the, the promise through Joseph about the stars and the sun being the people of God. Uh, maybe, maybe not. And this might just be the picture of the sun. Is, is, is the church is glorious? The, the, the people of God are are full of glory. Either way, the, the picture is spectacular, really. Uh, but this gigantic woman is also in labor with the birth pains of childbirth. Now, uh, just so you try to catch the vision a little bit, uh, I, I, you know, it's been a long time since my wife gave birth, so I, I thought, I, I want to, plus I've never done it, so I don't know what birth pains are like. Uh, so I typed in YouTube, you know, what, what are birth pains like? And actually, uh, some time ago, two guys, and, and then many people did this after, I guess, uh, decided, like, let's try to find out. So they went to the, uh, it must have been like a physical therapist's office where they take those little packets and they put them on, on their tummies, you know? And so they keep cranking it up, and you got these two guys laying on the bed going, ah! Right? Uh, Kirk actually said he would do it for Mother's Day next year as a way of honoring all moms. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is the vision, though. You have this, this huge woman, full of glory, crying out in birth pains. So this, this, is, a, this is a great sign, right? So just hold that image there. And another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. He had seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, he sh- so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now this is hideous, actually. Now this also is, this is picturing this massive, great dragon. It's red, probably to signify murderous, as we saw earlier in the book with the, the red horse. It's this, this huge dragon. He has seven heads, most likely the idea of wisdom. Then he has ten horns, which later in the book is described as kings. At very least we say authority. He's got Immense authority. He's got these diadems on each of the thorns. Is it on the thorns or on the heads? On the heads. So like these like crowns. 
Like showing he has authority. This, this thing's massive, this dragon, and it sweeps down a third of the earth. Of the, of the earth. Again, maybe pointing back down uh, to Daniel 8 where uh, this, this imagery is used of, of the, the serpent knocking down a third of the stars, referring to God's people being the stars, sort of like uh, to Abraham's offspring. Maybe, maybe not. Or maybe it's just a terrifying picture of this huge dragon with, with his tail can knock the stars down to the ground. I don't know. Either way, it's terrifying. It's absolutely hideous because the woman who is in birth pangs, the dragon is standing there. Arr, arr, give me the child. It, this is enough to make John pass out, I would think. And sure enough, she gives birth to this child then. Verse 5. And John whips through this scene, gives birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now in verse 5, John just whips through the incarnation of Christ all the way to the ascension of Christ, right? Where he's, seated, he, he's caught up to God and then he takes his seat on the throne. Just whips through it right in a sentence. He's birthed, he lives his life, does his ministry all the way to the, all the, way to the cross, buried, rises from the dead, has the time training to the disciples, caught up to God uh, where he's seated on the throne. He just whips through that, which he'll come back to that in 7 to 12 to kind of show what happened during that scene. But he whips through that, uh, and then we have uh, and this woman f- fleeing into the wilderness now. There's, this is where she's shrunk down to, to human size now. Now she's off in the wilderness. Now remember, a wilderness uh, is different than the way we typically think of it. I typed in Google, like, what do we call someone who lives in the wilderness? And, and, and they're called forest dwellers in our culture, uh, which, which doesn't really quite depict what's going on here. Because someone that, that lives in the forest, you know, you can probably do pretty good. I mean, I, I'd probably die within a week, but most people could probably do okay, right? You could still get make fires if you're good at that sort of stuff. You could probably figure out how to fish and stuff like that. You'd probably eat, You'd have berries or whatever it is, you could survive. I mean, Jordan could live out there for years, I'm sure, right? Um, but the wilderness that they're talking about here, in, where John is writing at, and referring back to the Old Testament here, wilderness is not a place that you want to go. Wilderness is a place of death. It's a place of, of, of nothingness. There's, there's no water to be found. It's not a place where things grow. It's not a place safe for people to go and camp out. Um, which is why I use the word wastelanders. So wastelanders, uh, actually, it's, it's, a, it, it's a term I, I found. Um, it's, it's from some game. Uh, I was just typing in wasteland. What's, what do you call someone living in a wasteland? Apparently, there's, there's a game that the setting is that there's some like atomic war or something like that and uh, destroys the whole earth, but then there's like people still alive and they're going around shooting zombies, zombies or whatever. But there's these people that live out in the wasteland, uh, and they're called the wastelanders. Uh, the, the place of death out there that, that's dangerous. Uh, that's, that's why I think uh, th- that's a good term for this text. This woman now is, is forced to go and live in the wasteland. <clears throat> but look at what it says, that God has prepared a place for her in the wasteland. 
God, God is going to be with her in the wasteland, and he's going to do it for and nourish her when she's in the wasteland. And it will be for 1,260 days. Now, we've seen this number already in chapter 11. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, you have uh, John using uh, three different types of numbers to refer to the same time period. Uh, all the, the period going from the ascension of Christ all the way to the second coming. He uses the idea of 42 months, also uses 1260 days, and also this phrase, a time, times, and half a time. All of them actually add up uh, to, the same to the same thing. Uh, in the Jewish calendar, uh, 30 days made up a month. So 42 months times 30 gets you 1260 days. Uh, a time, times, and half a time, a time being a year, times being two of those, and then half a time is three and a half years. Three and a half years is 42 months, or 1260 days. So all these are referring to the same time period. John is using a number symbolically. We've seen this a ton of times already in the book. When you see a number, you assume first that it's, symbolically in, it's symbolic, unless you're proven otherwise. Uh, for example, a number that everybody agrees on, no matter how you read the book of Revelation, is that Jesus does not have seven eyes. But he does in chapter 5. No, he doesn't have seven eyes. It's symbolic. Numbers are meant to be read symbolic. Now, so we still have to ask, what is, it, what is three and a half symbolic of? What is three and a half years symbolic of? Well, I would understand that. This is coming from Daniel, this time, times, and half a time, to refer to the time period when, when God would allow his people to undergo hardship in the world, suffering, until the time of redemption. It's this idea of going through the wilderness and going through suffering, all that's going to get you to the promised land. And it's going to be this period. So John, then, looking at the church from the time of Jesus' ascension to glory to his second coming and saying, that is a three-and-a-half-year time or a, a period-like. Um, sort of like if, if, you know, if somebody says, oh, it's Friday the 13th this week, you know, most of us in our culture, we automatically think, oh, there's danger or whatever, you know, it's superstitious, right? It, the three and a half year to, to use that in a setting like this for John's audience drummed up that image right away. That, oh, that's a time of suffering that leads to glory, right? Uh, possibly that even Daniel's kind of use of this is also possibly coming from Elijah's time of three and a half years in the wilderness or the, the, the year of the drought, that God would care for him. Uh, remember, through the ravens and then through this woman, that God would care for him even through the drought. So this time period of this woman being in the wasteland, prepared by God to be nourished by God, even though she's in the wasteland, for a three-and-a-half-year period, it would be a time of suffering that leads to glory. And that's, that's the age of the church that we're in. All right, so let's do 7 through 12. 7 through 12, I understand, to actually be unpacking verse 5 a little bit. It's going to zoom in in verse 5. So what happened when the Christ was caught up to God? And I think he's going to zoom in right there in verse 7 and explain it. It says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But... The dragon was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was 
thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of the authority of his Christ have come, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So I think 7 through 12 is actually unpacking what happens as Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to glory, takes his throne. And it's simply that in the resurrection of Jesus, all the accusations against God's people are gone. They've actually been paid for. They're done. There's no more accusation to be made. And so Satan, if you think of it, it's like kicked out of the courtroom. So I mean, even in our system, right, you can't, you can't be punished for the same thing twice. Right? If somebody steals your car and they're caught, and they, you know, I don't, whatever, they spend a year in jail or something, or six months in jail, they pay the, they pay the penalty, and that time ends, you, you can't go back to the courtroom and say, hey, this guy stole my car. He, he needs to be punished. What would the judge say to you? He's already been punished. You can't, I'm not going to punish him again. That, that penalty has been paid. Get out of my courtroom. You're wasting my time. That's the picture here. There's no more room for Satan in heaven. Not, not that there's spatially not enough room. Right? It's not like, oh man, we're running out of space here. Let's, we've got to get rid of some people. No, that's not what's going on here. It's like, no, no, no. There, there's, you have nothing to say here. The accusations you bring against her, the accusations you bring against him, they've already been paid. Get out of my courtroom. That's the picture. Because the ascension of, or the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and then as he goes and takes his seat, just demonstrate, get out of, get out of the courtroom, Satan. And then notice it says that those, uh, the brothers, they have conquered him. Now throughout the book we've been telling, we've been being told, we've been, whatever, you know what I'm saying. We've been being exhorted to conquer, right? And here, here earlier, we've actually been told that the, the, the beast and stuff conquers the church. And here, we're actually told the church conquers Satan. And how does the church conquer Satan? By sword? No, but by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. Because, meaning, his accusations are gone. They have, they have no bearing. They cannot actually come after the people of God. And by the word of their testimony, which I understand, their, their persevering faith in the blood of the Lamb. So if 7 through 12 is a picture of what happened, or the result of verse 5, I understand verse 13 to 17 uh, to be unpacking verse 6. Going back to that image of, of what happened to this woman. Why did she have to run to the wilderness? What happened there? Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that, there had been, that, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But 
The woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time, which we've already seen. The serpent, well, then he poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman in order to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed uh, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. So just a couple things to point out here. Uh, this woman, as after she gives birth and the son is caught up to God, the, the dragon in the image comes after the woman and the, then she, then now she's flying. So first she was this gigantic woman uh, in, in, the, in the heavens with you know, the sun over, and then she's this shrinking woman. Now she's flying with these this wings. Again, don't try to picture this as going to happen in the future or happen in the past. This, this is an image, right? Most likely the, this eagle image is probably going back to Exodus 19. Remember God said he brought his people out of Egypt on wings like an eagle, Right? Or in Isaiah where he talks about he, that, that God's people will mount up on wings like eagles. It's this, this strong bird, powerful, that God gives the woman to, to be able to escape. Uh, and then also this river that comes out of the dragon's mouth. Now this is interesting. Uh, throughout the book, if you remember, it, when, when things are coming out of people's mouths, uh, like Jesus having the sword coming out of his mouth, remember? It's... We saw that it's, it's his words, because clearly told that in chapter 19. So it's not a literal sword. It's, it's, it's meant to be the image of this sharp judgment word. Uh, also, we saw the witnesses. They, they have fire that comes out of their mouth, like the strong word of judgment on the people. Probably the river is probably, again, going back to this. He's the deceiver. He he's, he's, tries to flood the people of God, with all of his deceits to distort their thinking, do everything he can to destroy them in their thoughts, in their minds, to use words to destroy them. That's probably what is going on there. So that's, that's the picture of chapter 12, I've, which again, that's why I call I think he's saying, wastelanders must be on the alert because the devil longs to destroy you. I think that's what John is trying to to get at here. So let's just think on that out of this image. Wastelanders, we must be on the alert because the devil longs to destroy us. The devil longs to destroy you. If you saw, he became furious with the woman. He's in absolute rage. In the woe of, chapter, of verse 12, woe to the earth because the devil's come down to you. Because he knows his time is short. It's sort of the idea of someone, you know, like they're, they're doing some sort of a crime or hurting someone and he knows the cops have been called. You, you would hope at that point that, that he would stop what he's doing. Instead, he's just gone mad. And he's going to hurt everyone in the process because he knows he's going down. It's already been decided. So... He's going to take every, anybody down with him. Now, what we must be careful of is to not think of the devil as some 
you know, somebody that wants to play nice or fight fair. You know, in junior high, we used to, we used to have boxing matches in basements. Uh, and, you know, that was just something we did as junior high boys. Now, we had rules, though. And, and you played by the rules. I mean, for example, I mean, I was actually doing pretty good when I started, uh, and then I went off, I went up. I mean, it was only a couple matches, so, but then I went up against the guy who was undefeated, and I got one in the nose, and I'm like, "This is, why do people do this? This hurts so bad," and so I called timeout, and he stopped. He said, "Okay," and then we started again. He got me in the nose again. I was like, "Oh, stop! I'm done," and he stopped. The the, the devil doesn't play like that. Like, my friend was playing by the rules. Like, we had these set rules. If I need time out, you stop. You stop the fight, right? The devil's not, he's not coming to the fight like this. The gloves are off. He might tell you, let's put the gloves on. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's just have a nice sparring match. And as soon as it's about to start, he throws off those gloves, which out the switchblade, and he goes after you. He does not play by the rules because he wants you destroyed. He's in absolute rage. He's furious with you. He hates you. You are the people creating the image of God who have been rescued by the blood of the Lamb, and he wants to destroy you. And not only is it the depth of his rage, but it's the breadth of his work. And in the next chapter, actually, we're going to see these beasts who is representing you know, these, these authorities and governmental powers. He, he'll, 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 he'll try to destroy us through the, the world, through the world system, he'll try to destroy us through ideologies. He'll, and, and when we get to Babylon, this, this lust, the, the lust of the world, he will use anything he can to destroy the church. He doesn't care if it's pleasure. He doesn't care if it's pain. I mean, he doesn't care if it's like new COVID restrictions. Right? He'll do anything he can. He hates the church. If he, could, if he can do anything so that people start thinking, uh, you know, bad thoughts about people in the church, he's loving it. You start th- making poor assumptions about someone sitting in the aisle next to you or in front of you, he loves it. He's having a field day when that happens. You know, wh- why does the church struggle in our day? Well, really the same reasons that it did in John's day. You, know, you had some churches who were oppressed, Church of uh, Smyrna, Church of Philadelphia, who were poor and ostracized in the community. You had some churches like Ephesus who had become self-righteous. Their love had grown cold. You had Laodicea who, who was rich, and yet they were cold, dead in their hearts. Lukewarm. Right? Their wealth had anesthetized them. It had numbed them. You had others uh, like Thyatira and Sardis who were infected with false teaching. You had the church at Pergamum who, uh, you know, had a problem with purity. Now, now why does that happen? Well, on one level, we would, we would definitely, I mean, the scripture answers that differently, right? There, on one level, we would say, well, human sin is clearly involved in some of that. 
And that's right. That would be, be an accurate answer. You could also say it's just the world, this broken world that we live in, causes a lot of pain and destruction and sorrow. And that would be an accurate answer. You could also say God's sovereign plan um, controls all things and trains his people through hardship. And that would also be answered. But this chapter answers it that the devil's fingerprints are all over it. He'll use whatever he can to destroy the church. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil himself is involved in every situation necessarily, right? I mean, just think quickly of, of, of Jesus as he's talking with the disciples and said, who would people say that I am? And Peter, you know, gloriously says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, uh, Peter, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has given this to you, revealed this to you. And then Jesus tells them about how he's about to, to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And what does Peter say? No. And not, not you, not Messiah, not on my watch, no way. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Right, now, that doesn't mean that Peter just became Satan. It just means that Peter has been infected by the thought process of the satanic ways of influencing, right? It's, it's just, his fingerprints are all over. And Satan wants to destroy you. <clears throat> Now, because of that, it, it makes sense that, that John's then aim is to have wastelanders. We must be on the alert. We must be on the alert. We must be prepared. Because Satan is not looking for a safe fight. He wants to destroy you, and he'll use anything he can. If he can destroy your marriage, great. However, it, whatever it takes, he'll do it. If he can cause relational discord, excellent. Whatever it takes. And so we must be on the alert I, I was recently listening to an interview with a, an old uh, uh, World War II vet, and uh, he, he was describing that. He, he said uh, one of the things that he saw uh, in battle was that anybody who, who took too small of a view towards the enemy, they just got, they got killed. He said he, there was a sergeant who, who stood up, and he was talking about the Germans, said, ah, those guys couldn't hit the broad side of the barn. And as soon as he finished, right between, his, right between the eyes, and he was gone. This whole thing was, you, you have to know your enemy, and you don't take them lightly. Those guys over there want to kill you. Elsewhere, right, uh, the devil is described as a, a roaring lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. He's not like a little kitten. He's a lion who wants to eat you, destroy you. So we must be on alert. Now, what is that? What is that? What would that mean, right? Is that does that mean we go to the gym and like we get really strong and like practice our swords? No, like it means to be strong spiritually, right? This is where this word Paul takes it in Ephesians. We do not we do not war against flesh and blood, but every powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So what do we do? We put on the full armor of God. What's the full armor of God? What's well, the shield of faith? So the, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth, right? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he tells us. So John says we must be about spiritual exercise. We must be filling our minds with truth if the enemy wants to deceive and distort the truth, right? This is John says we must be on the alert and be prepared for battle. Therefore, wastelanders must be on the alert. We must be prepared, that we must go about that business to prepare ourselves for the battle because the devil longs to destroy you. 
And that word longs to destroy you is also key to this text. Because the devil can't destroy you. I don't know if you caught that, but four times in this passage, the devil is going about his work to destroy, and he loses. And it just goes like that. The, battles, the, the scene is painted, and he loses immediately, right? He's standing there waiting to get, eat the child, and what happens? The child is born, and the child's caught up to God. Okay, well, now there's this war in heaven. He's going to fight against Michael and his angels, and what happens? He's defeated. Okay, well, he's going he's gonna to go after this woman in the wilderness. What happens? She gets the eagle, eagle's wings and flies away. Well, all right, I'm going to pour water out of my mouth of the river to draw her. What happens? The earth swallows up the river. He's just, just every time he attempts something, God takes over and, and he defeats the enemy. And furthermore, we're told that they conquer, the church conquers him. So while the devil rages and longs to destroy the church, the great news of the passage is that it can't. It longs to. The problem with us is sometimes we give the devil way too much foothold. We listen to him way too much. And so we listen to all the lies, right? You did what? Oh. You you call yourself a child of God after you just said that? You think God really wants to hear from you? You just thought that about your friend, about your parent, about your child? God wouldn't want anything to do with you. And you know as good as I do, it doesn't take long before some of those start to sweep over you and you are lost under the flood. Which, again, is why we have to be on the alert to speak back to those things and say, yeah, you're right. (laughs) God shouldn't want to be next to me. But I've conquered by the blood of the Lamb, not because of me, but because of the precious blood of the Lamb, and that's why I can go into his presence. You're right. I do deserve the judgment of God. Let me tell you some more. Did you know I also thought this? Did you know I also did that? And that, too, has been paid for. This passage is beaming with this idea that the devil longs to destroy you, but he cannot because the blood of the Lamb has already paid. No more room for Satan in heaven for the people of God. And finally, just thinking once again on wastelanders. The passage, uh, you know, reading a passage like this, we should not be surprised by the difficulty of the pilgrimage. This 1260 days, three and a half years, this this time period that we live in is difficult. It's a time of wilderness. It's painful. There's sorrow. There's confusion. There's things that frustrate us. But what does it say? There's a place prepared by God for us. Here. Here. And where we'll be nourished, what I understand actually in the context of the passage to mean that God will see to it that he will get us to the end to be the people who hold to the word of the testimony. It doesn't mean we will not undergo suffering. Most likely we will. We will be the hunted by the devil. We will be the harassed by the devil in any way he can. And yet we are the helped by God. Those who get nourished by the truth of God's word to get us to the end, to hold to the testimony until we see him face to face.
in glory. And so we turn to the Lord's Supper. And let us remind ourselves once again that we have conquered the enemy.